Welcome to Wisdom.MBA, a podcast where I interview business school students, professors, and alums. We look to share wisdom, focusing on the hard lessons learned through different career, school, and business endeavors, and share insights into how you can put a business school education to best use. On today's podcast, I interviewed Joe Colopy, who is the founder and former CEO of Bronto Software, a cloud-based provider of e-commerce marketing automation headquartered in Durham, North Carolina. Bronto grew its revenue from zero to $50 million over 15 years, with a $200 million exit in 2015, selling to NetSuite, which was then acquired by Oracle. I've known Joe since 2006 when I started using the platform and have watched it grow and become an industry leader in omni-channel marketing. Recently, Joe launched Jurassic Capital, which invests in B2B software companies throughout the Southeast, leveraging his experience to help growth stage software companies scale. Two years ago, he also launched GrepBeat, which covers tech news and views from Raleigh-Durham and the surrounding area. It's like TechCrunch for the Research Triangle Park with a little bit of BuzzFeed as well. It's a great resource for entrepreneurs in the area to help their voices be heard and to put RTP on the map as an emerging and world-class business hub. Joe completed his undergraduate degree in computer science and economics from Harvard University and has an MBA from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. With an MBA in computer science degree, Joe and I get pretty technical and talk about what it takes to scale a software business, hire and recruit developers, and we discuss future trends in digital marketing. Joe also provides his insight in how best to leverage an MBA education and the relationships that you build while at school. So with that, I hope you enjoy my conversation with Joe Colopy. So welcome, Joe, and thanks so much for joining me. You know, it's a real honor to have you on the podcast and taking the time to speak with me today. Um, so I assume you're calling here uh, right around the corner in Durham, North Carolina. I got that correct? Yeah, absolutely. I uh, live right across from Duke University in Durham, North Carolina. So I'm seeing all the students come back, hopefully, safely. Yeah, and I and you know Durham is a great place to launch and grow a business, which you have done uh, multiple times, it seems. But also is a great place, you know, to ride out a global pandemic. I mean, we have fast internet, plenty of open spaces and beautiful weather. So I hope you and your family have been keeping safe like we have as well. But I agree. September, I'm back on campus in just less than a month. And uh, we'll see what happens. But they're definitely taking a lot of precautions here in Durham, which is great to see. Yeah, no, it's very good. They're doing a good job. So the first topic I want to start with is scaling a business. So you started Jurassic Capital with former Bronto alum, Kevin Mosley, where you guys invest in B2B software companies throughout the Southeast. And your, your investment thesis, you state that it's hard for a software business to get off the ground and even harder to get it to a few million dollars in revenue. But usually it takes another skill set to scale it to tens of millions in revenue. That's a different fish. And that's where we come in. So my question is, in your experience, what are the core skills needed to help launch a B2B SaaS company versus those required to get it to tens of million dollars in revenue and beyond? Yeah, no, definitely. Well, I do think the question comes up quite a bit, and it's an entrepreneurial paradox, right? The What it takes to start a business is different than what it takes to scale a business. And uh, particularly the scaling is where MBA training, a lot of those things kind of come into play. At the early stages, you know, you need a real hustle uh, and uh, type attitude, and it could be very rough around the edges. Often it's just an execute, execute, execute. And you could do that, and you can actually get to a few million dollars based on what I like to say is individual heroics. What can you do? What you, can you immediately enable other people to do? 
and you can get pretty far um, and build a small team. But to get beyond that, often you need to really start um, building a leadership team, which empowers them. You need a different level of rigor of operational metrics. You need to figure out how you can scale other people and you have to get much more process oriented. So what um, Kevin and I tend to see, and I've seen for a number of years around the triangle in the Southeast and really everywhere, is that you have a number of these companies who, who maybe bootstrap their business, get to a million, $2 million after many years, and then they kind of just hang out there. And they can't quite figure out why they can't move on to 10 or $20 million. And it's usually some combination of, well, we don't have the money to do that, or um, they're just caught in indigestion of their own problems because they didn't really focus on scalability. So what they did to one or $2 million was probably absolutely the right thing. It's really hard and it requires a certain set of skills. The hard, hard part is that about $2 million or so, you really need to start reinventing yourself. And everything that was strong before, your ability to be an amazing individual performer and hustler can actually start turning into a negative, which means mm-hmm. you're micromanaging, you can't enable other people. And so that's where we come in is we see those traits and we start helping the companies bring process in and help them think about uh, and organize differently for a different level of business. So on that notion of individual heroics during sort of the early startup phase, you know, Bronto grew its revenue from zero to $50 million over 15 years with an exit in 2015. And I read one of your blog posts where you described that process as growth by a thousand paper cuts. And you referenced Winston Churchill, who wrote, success consists of going from failure to failure without losing enthusiasm. So what advice would you give to startups and business owners, particularly during COVID, for keeping motivated during sort of failures and ultimate setbacks that um, may have been accelerated over the last five months? Mm -hmm. Well, I think it's hard for... You know, if I was in my 20s or teenager and I spent my days looking at social media and I look at these very glossy people on Instagram, it would be very hard because it's a pursuit of perfection. When, as you get older, you realize it's not quite like that, that you're being presented an image. And I think it's very much the same thing with companies as well. When you read about it in the press, even a story like Bronto that seems like, wow, it was a great success. It was up. Uh, up, up, up in terms of revenue, a smooth curve. But anyone who's really been it realized it's not quite like that at all. It, it's you're constantly taking hits and being smacked down, and it's constantly of having to take a step back. But then you're able to kind of marshal the right attitude and optimism, not obliviousness, but optimism to push forward, figure it out, and and keep on moving forward. So it's a persistence game. And when you look at a persistence game over a long period of time and you kind of squint enough and blur up the lines, it looks like it's just one positive trajectory. But actually, when you're living it, it's like you're constantly being beat down. And if you're a particularly ambitious, aggressive person, you don't tend to look back. You tend to be just forward with the, uh, you tend to be present with the challenge at the time, right? Mm-hmm. So you always feel like you get little wins, but little losses. From an outside observer, it's actually, if you're doing well, it's always increasing. But when you're in the game itself, it's kind of an emotional roller coaster. 
<laughs> so that's the paper cuts. Yeah, I can only imagine. And I wonder there if a bit of routine is helpful. So, you know, we ultimately have setbacks in business, but life as well. And I think that even my routine during COVID has been helpful because there's ups and downs. You know, it's, you know, setting, getting up earlier, you know, making sure I get exercise in when I have those challenges of trying to homeschool my kids, uh, which I'm sure every parent has, um, you know, it is keep, keep, marching forward it's going to be hard but i think sticking to routine at least in my experience has helped when there's ultimate adversity and in, in, in challenging times so with bootstrapping your business so with bronto you took no outside investment and you bootstrapped and i read an inc uh, magazine article that provides some advice for folks looking to bootstrap a business and they state that you know starting a business by yourself is very hard it's even harder when you have no money so find a good partner who shares your passion for the product, but don't look for someone who's just like you. So the question here is, you know, how important is having a, a solid business partner when bootstrapping a business? And did your skill set complement that of um, Chad Felix as your partner at uh, Bronto? Yeah, so I think there are many different ways to start a business. There's many different right answers, but there are some definitely wrong answers. <laughs> so... Um, I don't think it's necessary to have a co-founder and that's inherently tied to uh, bootstrapping versus not bootstrapping a business. I think it's this though, is when you want it, when you're bootstrapping, I, I think, um, you know, it might make some sense for um, people to help you out financially. And it's also worth noting that when people bootstrap, it just means the financing comes in a different form. My wife mm -hmm. was working at the time. You know, we had a lot of savings. We lived very cheaply. So we're really talking about bootstrap, which means my financing was like sweat equity and savings and other forms more than an outside uh, institutional investor. So that's kind of one thing. The second thing is in terms of having a co-founder, I think it can make a lot of sense. I mean, for one, building a business is very lonely. You know, you have to deal with a, a litany of issues, the topics that only if you've been really in the mucky muck can you truly understand. So having someone else to talk that through is, is very, very helpful. Uh, it's also, um, you know, I think when you're building a business, particularly early on, it's just you, which I did at the very, you know, for the first few years, actually, I was, it was just me kind of coding something. It's very easy to slip into it just being a hobby and so even if it shouldn't be and i think having another person keeps you a lot more accountable uh to each other and makes it more real uh, i think the third thing is people are different right so when bronto was starting and i had a product some early users and i kind of known Chaz through different uh, entrepreneurial circles through business school and then we both worked at short stints at red hat we, um, you know, we're like-minded, but we had different strengths in different places we want to focus. And so bringing him on board um, early on, it really worked well. And it was a great partnership because as the years went on, I could focus I, I probably a little bit more strategic, a little bit more understand the interplay of the market and the product and what we need to do. And then he, a bit more of a, executional person in terms of can marshal the troops. So he tended to focus more on sales and later on professional services, things that were more um, metric driven 
Uh, and so he ultimately became a, a great COO uh, that really Bronto wouldn't have been where it ended up without him in place, right? And where I think that complemented my COS abilities, where I'm more speaking about vision, I'm more thinking about where we're going to go, how to articulate this. And so it really worked well. I mean, early on, to refer to your uh, an earlier topic, is we were both back back in there scrambling. But when we after a few million dollars revenue, we're able to kind of find our good places and really take that groove to take us about 50 million in revenue. And it worked really well, obviously. I mean, we, we worked together closely for 15 years. So it had to be something right. So I want to congratulate you on the two-year anniversary of GrepBeat. And, you know, GrepBeat, for anyone listening that hasn't gone to check it out, please do so at grepbeat.com. They cover, you know, tech news and views uh, in, in Raleigh and Durham and the surrounding areas. You describe it as tech crunch for the triangle with a splash of BuzzFeed. And there's a subtle nod to, to Linux coding in the name. And um, it says here that you started GrepBeat, you know, as a service for local on, the local entrepreneurial community. And our mission is to reduce the friction in starting and growing the area's tech startups. So, you know, you talked a little bit about the lonely challenges of um, being an entrepreneur. And, you know, how did those early days at Bronto, you know, influence or did it? your your need or want to launch GrepBeat as a service, perhaps, to overcome that loneliness, to sort of commiserate with other entrepreneurs and help them along their journey? Yeah, well, it's, it does a few things. So one, I left my job. I was a marketing manager at Red Hat in the summer of 2000. Bronto Mail, which was the predecessor name of Bronto Software, did not get incorporated uh, until, well, May um, 2002, right? So there's a good amount of time in there. And Chaz, I think, joined in April. So there was a lot of time in there kind of floating through the universe, trying to figure out different products, coding different things, trying different ideas with not a lot of things working out. And it really wasn't until the beginning of 2002 where the early semblance of Bronto Mail started taking shape. So there's a gap of time in there. And I think having that experience and certainly the early days of Bronto and even the later days of Bronto, I, I've had really the full run of what it's like to be an entrepreneur with nothing to be an entrepreneur that has a lot. And I learned a few things. So one of them is when, you know, they say success has many parents and failures always an orphan or something like that. Right. So mm -hmm. later on, there are lots of people who want to support you, congratulate you and validate you probably more than one deserves. <laughs> but mm -hmm. early, I'm sorry, later on, but early on, that's not true. Right. So just having someone who's going to write a story about you and you are just two people hacking out code with three customers, that is validating. That feels not only good, but it helps articulate, summarize your story. And that's a mm -hmm. good thing. So that's great for early stages. Second thing is, you know, it's hard to have a voice when you're small, right? It's hard to get the word out, whether it's for customers or whether it's for service providers or investors. And if you just have an article written about you or you're on a podcast or you're on some kind of Zoom webinar as an expert, we are helping tell your story. Right. And that helps 
formalize and give validity to what you're building. And that's a good thing. It's also worth noting, like, from that's all from a micro perspective, but from a macro perspective, if the Raleigh-Durham area, the Triangle area wants to be kind of a tech center, then we have to act like a tech center. And if we, that means that we need news stories and media coming out of this area from a triangle point of view. If you think about Hollywood and you think about all the different places in the world, but when you watch movies, an order number of them seem to appear in like LA. <laughs> mm -hmm, Why? Because mm -hmm. it's convenient, right? And that biases people thinking. If you think of Silicon Valley, they do many awesome things, but it starts being a self-fulfilling prophecy because people and investors just kind of focus on what's near them. So how do we kind of add our own little anchor, our own little center of gravity here in North Carolina and the Southeast? And one way to do it is through media, right? It's not all about, yes, we need more entrepreneurs and yes, we need more investors, but sometimes to solve a problem, you have to come in from the side. And so building up media that focuses just on this area or tells common tech stories and problems from the perspective of triangle-based entrepreneurs and investors, that helps um, make this area more of a centerpiece for technology. No, and that's wonderful. And it's it's great to hear sort of that service that you're providing for younger startups to tell their stories, to validate it, even when the times are tough, just to give them that emotional boost. And, you know, you and I know, and everybody here in RTP, that it's a wonderful place to live. I moved down here from Canada, and um, I've never looked back. It's an awesome place to live, like I said early on, and, um, you know, run a business and be involved. So it's, you know, the more stories that can get out there, the better. And it's it's a wonderful uh, service and opportunity for, um, for RTP. So kind of related to that, and just, you know, from my standpoint as a long-time Bronto client, I feel that you guys really excelled at building company culture that helped recruit great talent. You know, Bronto won a number of best places to work awards. There was a combination of generous benefits, YMCA memberships, growth opportunities, and so forth. So company culture is obviously very important for all organizations, but do you think it's particularly important for SaaS companies that need to recruit and retain developers and highly technical employees whose skills are in greater demand? And, you know, in my experience, there has been a challenge in this area to recruit and retain tech talent. And I think as more companies come in, um, you'll see that as well. So did I miss the mark there or is it particularly important for, um, for developers to really have that strong community and, and company culture? Oh, it's, it's definitely important for developers and other folks in tech companies to have a strong culture. So to talk specifically about, let's say, developers, I think there's a set of three things that makes a great uh, environment for software engineers, and they are the lifeblood of, of, of software companies, right, for obvious reasons, whether they're SaaS or not. and one is what I find is they they want to work on interesting projects, and what that tends to mean is if you if you're a software engineer and you're going to walk into a company and you're going to work on converting legacy code all day, or is old technologies, or it's just slinging code doing the same thing all day, that's not a very interesting problem. Um, in our space, 
uh, on one level, you think, oh, it's email marketing sent emails. But from an engineering point of view, you're dealing with a very high volume of data because you're tracking all these different things. We use very modern technologies to process these things, right? I, I have a computer science degree, and so I definitely understood the value in working on solving the right problems, right? And so I think that translates to the engineering organization at Bronto. And so working on interesting problems with interesting technologies is really important. That's one big bucket. The second big bucket is they want to work with interesting, or more importantly, very sharp leaders. And that is a recruiting challenge, right? And it's one of those things where as a leader, as the leader with other leaders, we took recruiting and people very, very seriously. And we really tried to hire the, the right people and we didn't necessarily pay top dollar. So the people we had there really wanted to be there and to be truly talented. I didn't believe, obviously I want to play people well, but I wanted to avoid the mercenaries, right? The mm -hmm. people who would just go to anywhere for any price. I wanted people that got a fair price and wanted to come there because of these other things and that made the culture even stronger. And so that's really important. And the third thing, of course, which goes to the test of the other two, is, is a really interesting culture. And I think there are a lot of things that go into that. Um, at its core, being transparent, honest, the leaders feel like they're transparent, honest, and want to connect with people. And, you know, over the years, I've had a number of uh, HR leaders come from other companies say, oh, we'd love to have a Bronto culture. Uh, it's like, oh, great. Well, uh, what does the CEO do this? The COO do this? CFO do this? Oh, no, they don't really want to be involved. They just kind of pass it off to us. Well, that's not going to work, right? Mm -hmm. You can't outsource your culture. It really has to be instilled with the leadership and they have to own it. And so, and if that happens, then great things can come out of it. At Bronto, I think in particular, we had, uh, because we were bootstrap, we didn't have a board per se. And so Chaz and I and the other members of our leadership team they were very well vested uh, in terms of decision-making. There were no other secret parties we could blame things on or maybe that could undercut our decision. So um, I could say things with a lot of confidence, right, in terms of how it was going to go down and be consistent with that. Back in the day when I started my career, I was actually a teacher. And so this was overseas in the Peace Corps and another time in South America. And teaching is all about nurturing and developing people. And I think once I saw a company, a technology company was less about the technology and it was more about an organizational platform and building people and developing people uh, that happens to do technology, then, then I think that led to a lot of success as we scaled. Yeah, I love this notion of really you can't outsource culture. You have to live it and you have to nurture it. And like most people, I when I was sort of researching for the podcast, I had no idea where Seychelles were, uh, where you did your uh, two I, I didn't either before I had to go there. <laughs> well, it looks glorious. I mean, it's, um, you know, what is it, off the coast of Africa, quite a bit north of Madagascar, as yeah. a number of islands that look like the British Virgin Islands. And oh, yeah. If, uh, beautiful. When I, when I started looking, I was like, man, I wish I was there right now, to be honest. It's like uh, a probably better place to quarantine than Durham, North Carolina, if there are such places out there. Um, but with that, I, I love this notion of, you know, your experience there, really what it taught you, how to nurture it, how to teach. 
And then another aspect of the the company culture that was you know part of your DNA was community service um, mm-hmm. in the triangle. And you know, did you find that those projects really helped galvanize culture? And were there some in particular that stood out more so than others? So the, my Peace Corps experience was definitely formative and helped me in many different ways. One of them is I'm in some small off island on the other side of the world that was actually fairly developed, like a Caribbean island would be developed, not quite like the U.S. In some ways, in some ways, not so much. And so, but there was a lot of time, right? A lot of lack of structure. So, you know, in times of COVID where we have a lack of structure, it kind of helps you uh, create purpose and structure when maybe there isn't so much. That's one thing. Uh, Also related to that, we're in the U.S., we're in a go, go, go culture, right? And so when you start a business, it's not very glamorous. And sometimes you just need to be maybe focused less on impressing others and just get your own stuff done. And I think when you're in a faraway country in the Peace Corps where the culture is very different, you kind of refine those skills a little bit. So I think that was helpful. I think also, like I mentioned, um, the the, the actual teaching and working with other people, um, that was really, really helpful, being very comfortable in a foreign environment. Uh, be able to articulate things to people where English was not their first language and their language is not mine, Creole. Um, that was really helpful. And, and then finally, with the community service aspect, I, I've always done a bit of community service in, in my life. Uh, I was a, a Boy Scout, an Eagle Scout growing up. We did quite a bit through that, through college, and then obviously with the Peace Corps. And what I kind of saw when I was applied to businesses, other, a lot of businesses, what they would do is they would take this perspective of that we do community service uh, and we're not going to do our business and we're going to go do this siloed thing in terms of community service. And that sends the wrong message. That sends the wrong message in that it says we're going to help people despite success of our business. So if we help people, yeah, we're going to do it because we're good people, but we're going to take a hit somewhere else. And I fundamentally believe that was wrong. And I believe that community service, we are part of the community in Durham. We need to get back to that community. That is not something that we're doing despite business. It's something, it's part of business. And so we started organizing. Um, basically, we would give everyone, I think it started as a half day and then turned into two half days per year, where we would go work on different community service projects as a team. So the, the the synergy was, hey, we're going to like get to know each other and work with each other better. So when we have engineering problems or sales problems or whatever, we've already developed a little bit of a relationship outside of the, the um, work vocabulary, uh, and that's going to pay dividends later. And we're going to form, it's going to help us gel as a community, as a group and culture. And, and also we're going to be, we're going to realize that we're not some silent little tech company sitting over here that we're actually part of all these other things we're participating and and also where we want to attract the type of people who value helping their community and we want to retain mm-hmm. people who see that's part of their life so all those things together um, uh, allowed us to basically have a whole team that focused um, on organizing community service events whether it's with habitat or seeds which is community garden or the mlk yep. center which is an after school program and it worked really well. And as we grew and we had several hundred people, um, that's and you have you know a few days a year where people are allocated during work time to work together on these projects. That's a lot of labor. 
And right. as we expanded later on into the UK through an office in London and Australia through an office in Sydney, we're able to take that concept uh, in those markets as, as well. And then for them to apply that in a UK way or an Australian way. And that was amazing. And what was really, really probably the most powerful thing about it was a number of people would came up to me afterwards and say, hey, thank you for doing this. I've never really volunteered for Habitat before. I've never really done this kind of thing before. And they and suddenly kind of expose them to a way of being that they hadn't, through their life experience, really hadn't been part of. And and now hopefully they'll continue with that, right? So um, it was a very powerful thing at Bronto. Um, and I think it also worked because the leaders, myself obviously, and others, we uh, we didn't outsource it. Like we believe this is core to who we are. We're out there doing stuff just like with everyone else. And we made it a priority. And it made us a better culture, which made us a better business. Yeah. And it, it sounds to me with that, it becomes more authentic because you are living it. You believe it. And it does relate to business school in the sense that early on when you start, at least I did and most schools do the same, we have a lot of those activities, you know, where it's triangle, you know, the, the ropes course. Um, not a, not not as much volunteering, but you need to have that sort of interaction with your team to sort of build that bond, so that when you do have your challenges in cases that are that are a struggle, and you have um, different business school projects that you're working on, you have that trust, and you've sort of built that relationship to sort of get you past those challenges that you'll face in business school. And um, so, I think there's quite a bit of uh, overlap and parallel and wisdom that uh, anybody listening right now can apply to their teams at, at school. Um, so I want to change gears a little bit. And, um, you know, I, I, I view you and having worked with you for a long time, you're, you're very technical. You're also an extremely visionary thinker. You've built a very powerful omni-channel marketing platform. So I want to get your thoughts on sort of future trends in marketing. Are there trends or platforms or marketing techniques that you feel will be you know, really growing in the next few years? What are you, what are you keeping your eye on um, you know, around the corner? Well, first, thank you for calling me very technical. I think that I, I'm very technical with people, maybe when they're not as technical. <laughs> Fair enough. But if I hang Fair out enough. with technical people, they're like, oh, who are you? It's like, you have a yeah. CS degree, really? So, well, you know, it's from a little more university. The bar is kind of a little lower than it fake is at an engineering school. <laughs> fake, it to, fake it till you make it. That's what I always say. That's <laughs> so. right. That's right. Um, yeah. So, um, you know, what do I see out there on the horizon? So I'm obviously, there's, I think, a continuation of marketing moving from a creative discipline. I mean, it's already long moved from creative discipline to more of an analytical one. And it's a data game. It's who's got the best information, who can keep it up to date. I think there's uh, a continual expansion of how do we pull data points in terms of whether people are interacting with the website or email or whatever, SMS, and how do we put together that as a good complete story. And it's one of those things where the basics are actually hard to do. And so just people getting better at the basics is probably where they make the most progress. Yep. But in terms of the, the flashy elements, there's a number of them out there. Um, I think one of the things we started looking at Bronto a number of years ago, we started looking a lot more at location-based marketing mm -hmm. and looking at uh, people's presence in different stores and how that would influence the profile of who they are, how that might change how you interact with them. I think um, one thing that I think is just very 
I mean, it's all interesting slash scary, right? I think when I look at technology, I think what element is progressing so incredibly fast, uh, I think you really get into, people use ideas, machine learning and through all these buzzwords, but it really means it's pattern recognition. Yeah. And I think what is, I think we've gotten pretty good um, in the last few years of doing image, static image pattern recognition. But to do it in video is like a lot harder, but it's not that hard, right? And it a lot has to do with processing speeds and that stuff's getting better and better and better. And things like an Amazon Web Services are making those um, things more and more accessible. So um, I that is, I don't know all how it's used in marketing, but you can imagine, and not to be futuristic, but the idea when someone comes into a store and a physical store and you know who they are right some places could do that they can do it through apps and whatever and they're not always so sophisticated how they do it but technically they definitely could do it being able to um, actually take a picture of a credit card recognize the numbers okay we could do that actually you start getting pretty good uh, in terms of rolling out people look at people's static picture Um, but the ability to look at video and break down who people are and somehow that like if I go into a mall, I by going to the mall, I send them, I'm open for my information being tracked, and somehow I knew we were in the mall because they have this camera that's scanning all these different people. Mm-hmm. That's not as crazy as it might sound, right? And so then, what takes longer is to figure out one ethically, do we even want that to happen, and legally, yep. what are people's rights? Which of course is the most important thing. But then inevitably, there's going to be people who waive waive those rights because they'll get $5 off of this or a free ice cream cone or whatever. And then how does that tie into marketers' profiles? And then how do marketers use that in a way that's not creepy, right? And so the technology is here and it's coming. I think it's the ethical questions and the implementation that we kind of need to like work through. But I think that's... Pattern recognition when it comes to certainly audio, but like video in particular, um, is crazy powerful um, and scary and exciting and weird all at the same time. I I couldn't agree more. And I think there's three things I kind of want to unpack there that you mentioned. I agree totally on the data game. I mean, from my standpoint as an e-commerce marketer, it is figuring out your cost per conversion, your cost per click, starting with the math. And then utilizing all the channels to make sure that your ROAS, your cost per click, cost per conversion is in line with what you're expecting. On the pattern recognition side of things, we've used at my past role, Google Cloud Vision API, which is a very powerful tool that lets you upload an image and it can tell you the content of those images. So we ran an experiment where it was, you know, you've taken a photo of your kids and it could recognize that the Disney castles in the background, we were then using that to recommend artwork with our Disney collection. Mm. And you're starting to see that quite a bit more now on Instagram ads, where for instance, I uploaded a video of my daughter on an e-bike. And literally as soon as I logged into Instagram, I got a sponsored ad for that e-bike. And there's a white paper that I read where they've been basically building out the uh, image recognition software similar to Google's Cloud Vision API. So expect a lot more power there of recommending ads and products based on, like your point, not only the video, but the images as well. 
And then the third one, the location-based uh, marketing, I, I agree totally with what you're saying. I mean, I've experimented quite a bit on with geofencing in my career. And mm-hmm. you, know, you, you hinted at that with you know, the experiments at Bronto. But for anyone listening, a geofence is, is you surround a physical coordinate that you're trying to target, and then you send ads to those people based on their location. We did an experiment where we targeted uh, the Notre Dame uh, football stadium. And anybody that was in that geofence, we sent them advertisements for uh, Notre Dame artwork for their um, for their home offices. And um, on the so powerful tool, a lot of targeting capabilities. But you bring up this great point about the ethical issues of sort of that level of of targeting. I want to uh, just give a quick example, if you don't mind. I got to set it up here that that flows into that nicely, where I read a um, uh, on the American Bar Association, there was a discussion of a case where the plaintiffs alleged that uh, the weed killer Roundup caused non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And as the, pa- the case was going to trial, Roundup's manufacturer was using geofencing to tell people on their smartphones that were near the courthouse that it actually was safe, that it was, um, there was nothing wrong with it. And um, the plaintiff then tried to get an injunction on that activity, but then the court basically said, no, this is the First Amendment right. It's basically the equivalent of sending, sitting outside of a courthouse with buttons. So, you know, the Roundup's manufacturer could do geofence targeting and um, really try to influence public opinion. So that really ties into your point of that balance between, okay, there's ethical concerns that we may have while we have this very, very powerful um, technology that's out there. And I think you're going to see more and more instances of that. And as somebody who's been in email marketing for many years, you know, there's camp spam laws that pertain to email marketing. And I think that you'll start to see more legislation to sort of um, not fully control geofencing, but at least try to, um, you know, have some form of regulation so that, um, you know, marketers can target people in an ethical and, and meaningful way. Yeah, no, I, I think that makes that makes a lot of sense. Um, so on the topic of NBAs. Um, so it's also great to have a UNC grad here. My podcast has skewed quite heavily towards Duke. So I love the fact that we can sort of level it out here with the Tobacco Road rivalry. I got a lot of friends that went to UNC. It's a great school. And, um, you know, during March Madness, it's always interesting when you run a company here in the Triangle, um, sort of the different allegiances to different schools. So I, I will not pass any judgment at all. But um, you were the keynote speaker for the NBA at UNC commencement for Keenan Flagler Business School for Chapel Hill. And you talked about making connections to your classmates and inspiring one another to do something new. And in your speech, you said that an MBA is what happens when you are rushing towards something else. Can you describe that in a little bit more detail and what you meant by that? Sure. One, um, it was really fun to give the graduation speech, and it was the online program, and I, I learned a lot about online education and how that's being applied to MBAs, and it was really exciting. Um, I think with that quote in particular, the idea is that MBA is what happens when you rush into something else. That that um, you know, often people think of the MBA as a set of courses and you're going to take your quant classes, you're going to take your strategy classes, your finance and all this and that. Just like, and they think they're going to apply that to business and that's what business is. You apply these set of skills. 
And the reality it's it's those are just tools for something else. And the something else that I think one learns in MBA program is, and we alluded to this earlier, is how do you work with the team of other people? How do you work with them in the context of business, right? How do you have too much work and prioritize what's actually going to get done? What are the relationships you're going to make with your peers? So like 10 years later, um, you find that you can actually work together again uh, in different ways. If I, even in my case of Bronto, so uh, Chaz Felix, the co-founder, he uh, was an MBA that was, you know, a couple of years behind me in terms of graduation. And we didn't use really much of our MBA skills, anything we learned when we started. But when uh, once we started scaling, we used a lot of the vocabulary, ways to think about things, uh, relationships that we had earlier with other people in order to kind of scale the business. So I think the purpose of that quote was to not, people often forget um, what's the purpose of education and education is not necessarily just what sits in the textbooks. It's interaction with people and what you learn from them and how to work with them. Now that's great. And my hope for this podcast has been just that, like how you can interact with one another, learn some incredible stories, um, you know, such as yourself and everybody else that we've had on so far. And I couldn't agree more. I mean, a real catalyst for me to launch this has been, you know, the smart people that I've met, their backgrounds, and really the hope that I can continue to sort of build those bonds and sort of leverage their expertise and insight, you know, throughout my career. And I think the same thing holds for for all other uh, MBA programs. So Joe, this has been wonderful. Um, I really appreciate you taking the time. You know, you've done so much for the community and devoting a lot of your time to, you know, folks such as myself and, and young startups and uh, people in the area and, um, you know, really congratulate you on past success and future success. Encourage people to check out Grepbeat and, um, you know, Jurassic Capital as well and hope to hope to stay in touch and, and wish you all the best. Hey, thanks, Gavin. Appreciate it.